You know you are well-loved when people clap after your prayer. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Williams. The first full-time job that I had after I graduated was as a youth pastor. And during my first year in ministry, I had two major failures. Uh, I had more than two major failures. I'm only going to tell you about two of them this morning. The first one came my very first week in the office. We were getting ready to head out to a park. We were going to get a big soccer game going. It was my, the first time that I had teenagers in my car with me. And I, I, I was trying to convey to parents, yes, I'm a responsible adult. You can trust me with your children. So they all pile in my car. And I've got Daniel sitting in the front seat, middle schooler here. And I turn the car on, and we're talking. I'm nervous, but we're, we're making this work. And I go to shift gears. But instead of shifting gears, I grab Daniel's leg. And I froze, and he just yelled, Pastor Amanda, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> they did not fire me, thankfully. My second major failure was also with Daniel. <laughs> we had our first winter retreat. We were up in the Poconos Mountains. We had brought Dave Ward to speak to the group. Yeah, professor here, preaching professor, amazing. And for many of these teenagers, it was the first time they ever had some type of heartwarming experience with God. It was this mind-blowing, you know, oh, I, I didn't know that a relationship with God could feel like this. And I remember just standing in the back of that room and seeing kids worshiping for, for the first time and just how moving it was. Well, the next morning, Daniel came up to me and he said, Pastor Amanda, I don't feel that way. I said, what do you mean? He said, everybody acted like they felt God somehow. And I don't feel that. Why don't I feel that? I wish I could tell you that, that I uh, asked some very empathetic questions and did lots of listening and was pastoral towards him. But instead, I thought it would be a really good idea to compare faith to a marriage because if there's anything middle schoolers get, it's the complexities of marriage. So I'm talking. And as I'm talking, I know that this is the wrong thing to be saying, but I can't stop. The words just keep coming and coming, and as I'm talking, I'm thinking, this is horrible. No, this is not what I'm supposed to be saying. And when I finally stop, I say, Daniel, did any of that make sense? And he said, well, now I'm just depressed about marriage, too. <laughs> I loved his vulnerability, though. I loved his willingness to share his doubt. It seems like doubt only belongs in one place in the church, and that's after Easter when we talk about Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas. And it's unfortunate that he's got that nickname because he does a lot of other stuff other than doubt. So earlier in the book of John, Jesus is getting ready to go to Bethany, and the disciples say to him, uh, Lord, the last time you were here, they tried to kill you, and you want to go there again? <laughs> yep. 
And we read that Thomas pulls the disciples aside and says, let us also go with him, that we might die with him. Okay, that's not doubting Thomas, that is loyal Thomas. The next time we see Thomas, it's at the Last Supper. And Jesus has just said, I'm ascending to my Father, I'm going to a place, I will prepare a place for you. And the disciples say, where are you going? And Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. He sounds like a teenager there, doesn't he? Uh, where, what are you doing this Friday night? Oh, you know the way to the place where I'm going. He's just avoiding the question. But Thomas hears this and he says, no. No, we don't know. How can we know? Again, that's not doubting Thomas. This is a man that so desperately wants to be close to Jesus. The next time we hear about Thomas, it is in John 20, starting with verse 19. This is after Jesus has died. Easter Sunday has taken place. And we read, That evening, on the first day of the week, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he held out his hands for them to see, and he showed them his side. They were filled with joy when they saw their Lord. He spoke to them again and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you refuse to forgive them, they are unforgiven. Now, one of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. And here in John 20, Verse 25, we see Thomas the loyal transition to doubting Thomas. There's a phrase in there that I think is an important phrase. And it's the line, now Thomas was not with them. I think I have a pretty good idea why Thomas wasn't there. Thomas just watched his God die. He spent three years of his life following around someone he thought was the Messiah, and probably he was just some regular carpenter's son after all. So what's Thomas supposed to do? Go back home to his family? He doesn't have any, any money, no food on the table. You know, what's he supposed to say? Blessed are the poor? That's not going to go over too well. And so I imagine when the disciples said, hey, we're gathering together, Thomas said, uh-uh, <laughs> Not me. I've done that before. I'm going to go back to fishing and try to regain some dignity. And when Thomas comes back, I imagine Peter coming up to him and saying, you know, Thomas, we saw the Lord. And Thomas says, I don't believe you. And Peter says, no, it's true. We saw the Lord. And I imagine Thomas saying, well, sure, that's easy for you to believe. 
Peter. But I was never one of the inner disciples. Jesus never healed my mother-in-law. Jesus never invited me to walk on the water with him. I didn't see Jesus transfixed. I wasn't brought out to the Mount of Olives. Maybe if I would have had your experiences, Peter, I would believe too. But you know what? I haven't. I have experienced nothing that would make me think God is really alive. And I imagine Peter saying, but I saw the nails in his hands. And Thomas says, I don't want to just see those nail holes. I want to put my finger in them so I know this is not a ghost. You hear the pain for Thomas here. Now, here comes the rest of the story. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe in me anyway. A while back, I posted a question on Facebook about people's experiences with doubt. And I got a number of, of stories on my wall of people testifying to a time, well, well, I doubted here, but then this happened, and now I believed. Or I doubted here, and now, and now my faith is stronger. All these wonderful stories. But what was really interesting to me were the private messages that I got. And so one mother whose child had cancer at the time said, well, I don't think I doubt God, but I'm afraid, so maybe that's the same thing. Another person said, I do have doubts, and I feel so guilty about it because God has given me so much, and I can't even give him my trust. My favorite came from a pastor who said, I know that God loves me, but does God like me? There is a tendency to doubt alone. We might have doubts that creep up, but we keep them private. We don't put them on the wall, we send them in private messages if we send anything at all. We doubt, but we do so quietly. And I think it's understandable. I mean, the church doesn't always have a good track record when, of trying to respond to people with doubt. So someone expresses their doubt in their small group, and immediately the small group gets tense, and they start coming up with arguments. And instead of pastoral care, it's spiritual shaming. Or they go into some long, obscure connection to marriage that has nothing to do with what this person is experiencing. There's a danger in the church of treating doubt like a disease. So we see doubt as a disease, and we say, that's a disease, here's the medicine, take it quick so the rest of us don't get infected. 
But that's not what we see Jesus do. Jesus allows Thomas to have a relationship with doubt. Jesus lets seven days go by while Thomas is in this crippling doubt. Jesus could have very easily shown up right after Peter came. He could have shown up the next day. Seven days he waits. And that makes me wonder, perhaps, perhaps God sees something important in our doubts. Perhaps there are ways in which God uses our doubts to turn us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. Doubt is one of those things that can either bring us closer to God or bring us further away. It's almost like a ladder. Uh, doubt is to faith what, mar- what conflict is to marriage. Sorry, I'm going with another marriage analogy here. I think you can track with me. But I remember when John and I were engaged, someone told me, now, anytime you fight, anytime you argue, that's actually a chance to grow in intimacy because it's your chance, oh, hey, this is something new about this person that I didn't know about. And I remember thinking, oh, that's wonderful. I love that thought. Surely five years into my marriage, I'm going to be saying, thank you, John, for picking this fight so that I can know and love you better. And then I got married. And I realized that was not the time to grow in intimacy. That was the time to point out where he was completely wrong. But it's true. The best relationships are the ones that when conflict comes, you don't pull away you move closer. Sometimes, sometimes we need doubts to help us shed false images of God. Sometimes we need doubts to help us shed false images of God. If the God that you picture in your head is unloving, is unjust, I hope you doubt that God. If the God that you picture in your head is so disappointed in you, I hope you doubt that God. I remember when I was in high school going to my father and sharing some of my doubts and saying, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I believe in this, in this God. And my dad said, well, tell me this God that you don't believe in, Mandy, because I'll bet I don't believe in that God either. My first really major battle with doubt came when I was in my early 20s. John and I were in seminary, and a friend of mine had just walked away from the faith. Uh, He cited some books that he read, conversations that he had, and it seemed so sophisticated. And I felt like this spiritual bumpkin that just had religion as some kind of placebo pill to make myself feel better. And so I went to John, and I said, okay, John, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to tell me yes or no. Don't get all Socratic on me and start asking questions. Don't go into a commentary, yes or no. John was like, okay, yeah. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ literally, physically rose from the dead? And without missing a beat, John said, yes. Okay, I said. And that was all I needed. So we joke about people living vicariously through other people's vacation pictures. 
This was a period in my life when I had vicarious faith through someone I really respected and trusted. It's like I had these spiritual apron strings, a believer I could stay close to rather than pulling away. There's a prayer that I think is so good for the doubters that I prayed during this time. It's from Mark 9. It's it's a fantastic story. There's this dad. He's got his son. His son has some type of ailment that, that causes him to get hurt, to throw himself in the fire. And the dad takes him to the disciples to be healed, and the disciples can't do anything. And so they take him to Jesus. And you can hear the despair in this man's voice. He says, Lord, if you can do anything, heal my son. And Jesus says, if I can, nothing is impossible for the one who believes. And then the man says this, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Isn't that an honest prayer? I believe. So he says the faith that he wants to have, help my unbelief, while acknowledging the reality of where his faith is. And Jesus seems to honor the the honesty of his faith rather than the purity of it because he heals the son. When I go through those times of doubt, I cling to believers through vicarious faith. I pray the doubter's prayer. I also try to hold on to what little faith I might have left. So it used to be that whenever I started to doubt I would imagine God pulling out a big scale, like, you know, Lady Liberty, this type of thing, blindfold. And on one side over here goes my doubts, and on this side over here goes my faith, and whichever one had more would determine whether I was in or out, right? But Karl Barth, he's a theologian, Karl Barth said something that that completely changed my thinking on this. He said, no one should take unbelief seriously. Only faith is to be taken seriously. Jennifer, can I get these balloons here? (laughs) All right, so if these are my doubts, we had to keep these on the fridge to keep them away from my kids. (laughs) My tendency is to notice these doubts that I have and they're getting bigger, and they're bigger, and they're massive, and it seems like I've got a whole lot over here, and I wonder if I've got over on this side. But if it's true that faith is more powerful than doubt, it doesn't matter how much or how little faith I have, because it's just comparing balloons to bowling balls. There is no comparison. You might have just a sliver of faith, but it is way more powerful than any doubt you could ever have. Did you catch what, catch what Jesus said at the end of that passage? He said, blessed are those who believe who have not seen me. Your faith might be small, but it is blessed. My thumb is stuck. There we go. 1920. The year 1920, the president of Princeton University was walking around the grounds, and he was troubled. He was troubled because chapel at Princeton University was mandatory, but the students did not want to go to mandatory chapel. 
And they made that known by various pranks that they played. So they put tar on the pews, they tied cattle to the pulpit, they arranged for corporate bouts of bronchitis, don't get any ideas. And then the chapel burnt down, not an act of the students. And as the president was walking around these charred remains, he had an idea. He said, I am going to build a chapel that is so beautiful that students will want to come here and worship. We have a picture of the final result here. This is the chapel at Princeton University. It is the largest university chapel in America. It's the third largest in the world. You go in there, it's incredible. There's, there's 10,000 feet of stained glass, all with different uh, stories and characters, and you could get a whole Christian education just by looking at the walls. You walk in there, and it's like your voice automatically gets quieter because you know this is a holy place. You would never bring coffee in here. You don't even have to turn your cell phone off because it's like your cell phone just knows it's not supposed to ring in there. <laughs> There's a window in there that I like. It's the great south window. There it is. And in the middle, that's Jesus there. And the words that are on there are, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus, on either side of Jesus, are the two doubters from the Easter story. When I first saw this window, I thought, no, there's only one doubter, Thomas. But then you look at that other one, and you look closer, and you realize, oh, that's Pilate. Pilate, who started doubting Jesus long before Thomas did. So Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate asks the questions, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, is this true what they say? And Jesus doesn't say anything. And Pilate, you can see, is getting frustrated and annoyed. He doesn't know what to do. But rather than struggling with his doubt, he washes his hands, and he's done with it. Two doubters in the Easter story. When you start to doubt, you will see the road fork in two different directions. Now, you can't choose when you doubt. You can't choose what you doubt. But you can choose how you doubt. The road over here, this path of Pilate, it's a much easier path. You start down here, you might wrestle a little bit, but ultimately you're like, you know what, I'm, eh, I'm done with this. I don't belong here. I don't look like these people here. The path of Thomas is so much harder. It requires that you give up cynicism. It means that you keep meeting with believers even though it doesn't feel like you belong. It means you find a Peter, you find someone that you respect and trust and let them see where you're at. This is a vulnerable, terrifying path, but it is a blessed path. 
I find myself doubting the most today whenever I hear of atrocities across the world. Tsunami, child prostitutes, pictures of refugees. Those times where I'm going, really? (laughs) Can we do something about this, please? Are you even up there? But I read a story from Elie Wiesel. Some of you might know him. He's a Holocaust survivor. He was 16 years old when he was brought to a concentration camp. And he tells the story about how one night a rabbi invited him into his barracks, and this rabbi, along with two other rabbis, put God on trial. The trial lasted over the next few days. They called witnesses, they heard testimony, and at the end, they declared that God was guilty of crimes against humanity. Elie Wiesel says that the silence that followed felt like an entire day. And then the rabbi looked up at the sky and said, it's time for evening prayer. And all of the people gathered together began to pray. I might have my doubts. There are things I don't understand, but If a man like that can face the atrocities of the Holocaust and still somehow find God worthy of prayer, that's what I want to do, too. After Thomas sees Jesus, they have their reunion. Weeks pass, Jesus ascends into heaven. He tells the disciples to go across the world and spread the gospel. They don't do that. Instead, uh, persecution comes to the city of Jerusalem, and that's what makes them scatter. But Thomas does something different. All the other disciples, they stayed in the Roman Empire, traveled all around. But Thomas did something that the other disciples did not. Traditionally, we understand Thomas to have been the only disciple to go outside of the Roman Empire, bringing the gospel to as far away places as India. I can't help but wonder if there was something about Thomas's relationship with doubt that prepared him to do that kind of work. That, that somehow... Somehow, these questions, this agony, was exactly what he needed in order to give him the confidence and the faith to leave the Roman Empire. Your faith might be small, but it is blessed. You can't choose where you doubt. You can't choose when you doubt, but you can choose how you doubt. And so on a morning like this, it seems only appropriate to create space for doubt, to pray the doubter's prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But here's my hope. My hope is that nobody here will doubt alone. And so what I want to do is, during the prayer, if you're one of those people and you're saying, my, my faith, I look around here, Mandy, I don't belong here. 
if that's you, and you are willing to have the disciples around you pray over you, I would invite you in just a moment to come up here to these altars. And friends, if you see someone up here that you are friends with, don't let them be alone. Hightail it down here, put a hand on their shoulder. You're not trying to convince them of anything. You're simply saying, I'm here. Those of you that so desire, you are welcome to come to the altar now. The rest of us, let's bow our heads in prayer, keeping an eye out for friends that might be up here at the front. Lord, there is so much I don't understand about you. But the little bit of understanding that I do have completely overwhelms my senses. How somehow, Lord, a single kernel of faith could far outweigh all the doubts I have in the world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for not only revealing yourself to Thomas, thank you for blessing us for blessing those who believe in you who have not seen you because, God, it's really hard sometimes. And I pray specifically for this student body that the enemy would not isolate anyone in their doubt, but instead that the students here would have the courage and the vulnerability to say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, we pray this not so that we can all feel happy and secure in our faith. We pray this, Lord, because we believe that you want to send each one of us out into the world to do something that nobody else can. And God, if it's doubt that's going to prepare someone for that, then Lord, bring them through it. But allow disciples to come alongside of them. Be present with us, Lord Jesus. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. You are free to go to your classes. The altar will remain open, and God bless.